Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Random Redux Review Podcast. This one, I kind of cool it on the gimmicky sort of cringy comedy and things like that and just get straight into an interview. I will be doing other interviews just like this. It's certainly something I want to incorporate into this sort of uh, freeform format where I just talk to people I find really interesting and I think that people listening to this podcast might take something away from learn something about life and themselves, how they live their lives, things that I just think are important. So this first one is with a woman named Susan Rogers. The headline with her, if you don't know her name, is that she is most known as being Prince's, yes, that Prince, his personal sound engineer in the 80s. She was there in the room, literally, when most of Prince's really big hits were recorded. So, bound to be some interesting stories there. But that's not really what I think is most interesting about her. I mean, obviously, that's pretty cool, pretty neat. I think it's more her own story because, number one, being a woman recording engineer at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, it's not easy, I would think. She went on to become quite a successful record producer for other artists. And then, at the top of her game, she decided to walk away. She wanted to focus on a science known as psychoacoustics. And so she went out and got a degree, a doctorate, no less. But as you can tell, she's been, she's been really good at everything she's done up to this point. She wound up teaching at the Berkeley School of Music, where she was um, teaching future record producers and basically using that component to influence their future work. Even within that, I just think she's really interesting because she's sort of a person who kind of just did what she wanted regardless of what society or anyone else said was the right thing to do. And certainly when it comes to women, there's a lot of unspoken rules of what ladies are supposed to and not supposed to do, and she did. She definitely went against the grain. I'm very hopeful that my own daughters will be able to take influence from Susan and kind of her mindset towards life, just sort of just doing what you want and, and going out and doing it and being really good at it. Um, I hope they take that away. Anyway, so hopefully you take something away as well, listening to her talk. And to that end, she also has a book coming out, actually, September 20th. So just a day or two after this podcast first appears called This Is What It Sounds Like that uh, deals with the science of psychoacoustics, but not in a clinically dry way. She actually takes a lot of songs, most of which you've probably heard of, and talks about how they impact emotion and memory and mood and all that. I recommend checking that out. I'm definitely, uh, I've already pre-ordered my copy, but enough of yapping. And on to this interview with Susan Rogers. Welcome to the Random Redux Review Podcast. And now here is the only constant of every episode. It's the host, Rudy Fishman. 
what made me think I could do this is, I, I, I don't know, I, it felt like uh, all I had to do was go out there and have some fun and see what I could do and, and try it out. And if it didn't work, it wouldn't be considered a failure. So that gave me, uh, put enough wind in my sails that let me think, I'm gonna see how far I can go uh, just to see, and then I'll know, you know, once I reach that stopping point, I'll know, all right, here's how far you could go. So, so why music? Well, I knew I, I, as a child, like a lot of children, I was crazy about music, crazy about records to be specific, but a lot of kids who have that feeling, like yourself, I believe, will go on to become musicians. They learn to play a musical instrument, or they start writing music, they want to join a band, and they see themselves as they take that bond and that love and that attraction and fascination and they say, me too, me too. I wanna be part of this, of this community. I, I, I wanna put the music that's in my head out there in the world. But then there are others and I'm one of those others who is like, I don't have anything in there to put out. My musicality comes from being on input. I want to be the receiver of music. And I think those folks go into management or they become A&R executives or they become DJs. I, I thought, wow, it'd be great to be a DJ. Uh, but many of them become record makers. Although as a female, there were no role models. I mean, there just weren't. This is the late, you know, mid and late seventies. There's no role models, no females working as producers or engineers that I knew of. There were a couple ahead of me, but Damn, it was tough. The interview I saw you do where you're talking about how looking at sort of the names on the back of records. Yeah. You know how if you're walking the dog and the dog sees another dog, the dog gets all excited. Babies get so excited when they see other babies and you see a woman's name and you're like, oh, oh, oh. It just, it just feels exciting because you, you, you think there's another one like me. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's a little bit of rocket fuel there for you to even be trained up until this point wasn't exactly like a small thing. It wasn't like you had the money to go to school, to a tech, uh, engineering, music engineering school and all of that. I mean, I guess sort of how did you make that happen and what was sort of driving you sort of mentally and emotionally and psychologically to even do that at a time when, I mean, why? Women don't do this sort of thing. Hmm, it's hard to say what it was. But um, being a child and having uh, witnessed a parent and lose her life, ultimately, after six years of having cancer in one form or another, uh, I was 14 when my mother died. And uh, it, gives you, it gives you this sense as a child of how precious life is. And I always had the sense of, I'm going to get everything I can out of mine. You know, we're all smart enough to recognize we don't get everything that we want. It doesn't work like that. But... If, if you're fortunate, you'll get the things, and most of us do, I think, you'll get the things you want the most. So you elbow aside those other desires and see how far you get. I, 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 the, 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 the drive, I think, came from an awareness, like as long as you're here on this earth, see if you can't pursue what it is you want and, 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 and don't worry about it. It doesn't happen, but got to at least try. In terms of sort of emotionally and psychologically, I mean, sort of that impact music had on you from an early age. I mean, how much of that do you think was sort of driving this as well? 
I think it was it was it was the loudest voice in the room, so to speak, the loudest voice in my head. It was music was a source of comfort, a source of belonging, a source of truth telling. Listening to records, I, I felt like I, I I understood people and I understood romance. I, I understood. Uh, a, a sense of identity. M music was a way of being in the world and understanding the world and feeling connected to other people. And that felt as, as essential as air and, and water. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of record making. I wanted to contribute. It was a world that I couldn't enter as a performer or a songwriter. I didn't do those kinds of things and it didn't even feel like I wanted to do those kinds of things, but wherever records were being made, I wanted to be there and I wanted to feel like I helped. Record making is a service oriented profession, whether you're a producer, an engineer, whatever. I, 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 the only thing I thought was within my reach was being a technician who repaired the equipment. Uh, I, I, I like to study, I like mechanical things. And uh, I knew that that was something that I could do and that my contribution would be kind of unassailable because it would be objective and not subjective. Now, yeah, I was a young woman, so I didn't look like any engineers or producers. It didn't look like it was possible for me to be an engineer or producer because that's not what they look like. They don't look like women, but the tape machine doesn't care whether you have a Y chromosome or not. If the tape machine is broken, you show up and you repair it. At the end of the day, as the mathematicians say, if it is true, the equation will suffice. At the end of the day, you've either fixed the machine or you haven't. The proof is in the work. So I started with that. And then eventually, because I proved myself in that arena, I was given the opportunity to push into other territories. Okay, guys. I may have brain cancer, but I'm no dummy. I know why you're listening to this, so we're gonna get into the print stuff now. No, really, I promise. I was an audio technician in Hollywood and I'd been at it for about five years when the Prince job came calling. As an audio technician, uh, what I did is everything from installing recording studios to my, my regular most common gig, which was repairing consoles and tape machines. I studied basic audio electronics and reading schematics. So I would show up to a, to a job, to a studio where something had broken. And I'd have with me my oscilloscope, my toolbox, and my, my parts kit, I'd analyze what was wrong with the piece of equipment and I'd find the component that was wrong and replace it. That's what I was doing in the late 70s and early 80s. And then I heard through the professional grapevine in Hollywood, Sue, your dream job is waiting for you. Prince is looking for a technician. And, and Prince was my favorite artist in the world. So as soon as I heard that, I just knew I'm getting that job. As I, as I said earlier, it was a sense of, I don't know if I'll be good enough. I don't know if I can handle this, but damn, I'm gonna try. And I'll see how far I get. As it turned out, Prince loved outsiders. He loved people who were different from the norm because he always saw himself as an outsider. So I fit the bill for him quite nicely. He needed a technician to repair his home studio. At that time, he had just come off the 1999 tour and he was uh, in the process of making the Purple Rain film. Well, they had just had the green light for it, so they hadn't shot any footage yet, but 
it was on the way. He was recording songs for the Purple Rain album and he needed to keep that machine running pretty fast. When we look at him and his song lyrics and his life in the Purple Rain movie today, we see stuff that wouldn't fly in our current cultural climate, stuff that would be considered um, cancel worthy, I suppose. But in, in the early 1980s, it wasn't. And I certainly was capable of separating what an artist puts out there, their words, their look, and their stage performance, and who they are as human beings. I would say in many ways, his music is not misogynistic, but it is certainly very sort of like, it's in, in many ways, it's actually female empowering, but as a woman, it, I could see how that might be uncomfortable. You get your big break, uh, moving to, to Minnesota, day one of the new job, uh, your new employer is working on the song, Darling Nikki, <laughs> which is certainly notable as being you know, sort of one of the more, we'll say graphic, um, Prince songs, that's got to be a little interesting, I would think. I'll never forget that feeling. So uh, one of the very first things he, uh, he had me put up, or I don't remember if he asked me to put it up or if the tape was on the machine, but I was alone in his home studio. Now his home was a suburban, split-level suburban house in Chanhassen, Minnesota. You walk in from the front door and you can go down a half flight of stairs into a little landing. If you go to the right, you're in Prince's master bedroom. If you go to the left, you're in a smaller bedroom. And that's where he had his studio. There's a console in there and tape machines and big monitors on the wall. But it was pretty cramped in there. It was just a little bedroom. Anyway, I'm in this little bedroom studio alone. And, uh, and I played Darling Nikki through those big Westlake monitors. It just blew my hair back. I, I, heard anything so great and I kind of remember looking around and having that feeling of oh is anybody else hearing this I was a Prince fan when I went to work for him so I'm hearing this new Prince song all alone in Prince's house and it was just blowing me away everything about it the sounds and the lyrics and the melody and the guitar solo and everything about it I had that that feeling of how insanely fortunate I was. And that feeling never left me. The whole time I was with him, even on the worst days, that never left me. Okay, I just gotta say a quick sidebar. Promise I'll make this fast, but let's talk about Darling Nikki for a second. I always enjoyed this song, but it wasn't until I heard an interpretation by the great John Guffey that I really understood just how deep and complex the lyrics are in this song. You know, he's showing great vulnerability. I think it's important for men in this society. I mean, this is the case of him being the prey, not the predator. I mean, Nikki's badass. I mean, she makes... <laughs> She makes people sign a contract just to have sex with her. I mean, what's going on there? I mean, I don't know. It kind of goes back to, I really have to wonder what Susan was thinking when she first sat down. And this is literally the first thing she heard on her new dream job. I love the music and I love free speech and I love art. 
and someone can express the truth or the poetry in his or her heart. And it's true for them, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily true for me. Um, the world that Prince described in his lyrics was a world that was interesting and thrilling. It's not a world that I occupied, but I certainly enjoyed visiting. It's great to mentally occupy another world for a little bit. There's a difference between where we live and where we visit. And I would regard his lyrics as uh, a street that I love visiting. That, that was the metaphor he used, the street you live on. I love visiting, but other lyrics would strike me as my own personal truth. Darling Nikki, not so much. Certain, certain ones astounded me more than others, and I would have to include in that number Condition of the Heart on the Around the World in the Day album. And I also loved a very, very much a song called Joy and Repetition, which didn't, we did it together, but it didn't come out until after I'd left him. It was on the Graffiti Bridge album. Man, I love that record, Joy and Repetition can't actually even fathom what that would be like. I mean, the closest thing I had is I was a big pro wrestling fan in my younger days, and I did go work for a while for World Wrestling Entertainment, and that was weird seeing, like, people that I looked up to as a child just hanging out backstage and so forth, and some of them being not so nice to me, others being very nice. Prince was interesting, because uh, you speak so glowingly of him, I have to assume that it was mostly positive he was a relatively good employer so to speak um, i've heard that he's very he was very good to all his musicians and his crews when he's traveling and things like that did that extend to sort of the sound engineer but that's you know, also very demanding you know yes you got your own hotel room but you're going to be practicing 18 hours a day too so um how was that in terms of sort of the uh your relationship with him and I mean, what were the ways in which he made that up to you to make it kind of uh, more palatable? Yeah, he, um, I won't say that he was a saint and he wasn't in his working relationships with his band and with others, he wasn't a warm individual yet. He was funny and he was loving. So you knew that there was warmth there in him and tremendous joy. But that warmth was wrapped in this heart that was all business. He had a really strong, strong, strong work ethic, which he needed to have because he's now he's a 25 year old multimillionaire and his star is still on the rise when I joined him anyway in 1983. So how does a kid from North Minneapolis achieve all that? He's gotta be pretty tough. So yeah, he was, he was tough to work for in terms of the working hours. A 24 hour day was fairly typical. An 18 hour day is, uh, is, was, was, was the usual day. You can expect when you go to work, that it'll be 18 hours before you get out. A 12 hour day felt like kind of like a day off. <laughs> you got to have that much free time in a day. So that was really tough, but he paid everyone well. And every now and then, when you'd go above and beyond the call of duty, every now and then there'd be a 48 hour session. You'd be up for not 24 hours, but you'd be up for two days. The longest one I ever did was 96 hours. Rock and roll. Uh, that, that was epic. But it, when you do something like that, next week in your paycheck, there'd be an extra paycheck. And he, just, he didn't say anything about that, but he'd just tell 
his accounting folks uh, give Susan or give this person or that person a little extra bonus. It was a way of saying thank you. Uh, aside from sort of the monetary side to it, I mean, was there any point, a component of this that's like the love of the music itself, how the music impacted your brain that you think made it all a little bit easier to, to live through? Yeah, I always had that feeling with nearly every song we did, I think this might be the best thing he's ever done. I experienced that over and over and over and over again, a sense of wonder and appreciation and reverence. Imagine being in a room with this guy and he's either playing acoustic drums or he's programming a drum machine. Now picture this, when he's playing acoustic drums, he's not listening to a click track or any other music. He's recording the drums in this song from top to bottom, listening to nothing else, no need to wear headphones. He's just playing a drum track with all the breaks and all the fills and getting that tempo to be just perfect, tip to tail over four minutes, or six minutes or whatever it was he was doing. Then he'd come in, pick up the bass and lay down this bass part that would just kill you, it'd be so great. And then he'd put on his keyboard parts and he'd put on his guitar parts and his vocal. Who does that? To, 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 to be there every day watching him perform what actually were pretty amazing stunts is something I never lost an appreciation for. He, he, was, he was truly a one-of-a-kind talent. He was what we neuroscientists now would call a, a hyper-creative. His ideas just kept flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. And uh, a hyper-creative is always going to be producing something, whether it's good or bad, is debatable, but he, he was constantly on fire. Okay, we're just going to dip into a little sort of science sidebar here and talk about um, some acoustic science. I think it's kind of important to understand sort of the context of some of the things we'll be getting into ahead of this. I mean, we've already touched upon some things like how music and memory are connected and all that. And, but we're going to get into that more. Like that groove? It's from rock opera. I wanted to ask you about is that like, I know for me, I didn't really have a whole lot of friends growing up for a number of reasons, but uh, music very early on became very much sort of like my best friend. And I was kind of curious on that and certainly how it ties into sort of the neuroacoustic side and I have been always surrounding myself with a lot of music uh, my entire life, as I imagine you have as well. But I imagine part of that is sort of like that neuroscience side where it's like being ingrained into your brain that this is a comfort place. Let me, let me sketch through the, the basic mechanism and then I, I, I'll answer your question. When we're listening, the auditory system is taking that signal, you know, and our ears are just a little mechanical device and that mechanical device is converting that signal into a pattern of neurochemical activity in, in the, the auditory nerve bundle. And your bundle is essentially 30,000 neurons on the left and another 30,000 on the right. So what happens is the signal is coming from our ears and it's coming up the, uh, the uh, brainstem, the auditory brainstem, there's a pattern of activity. The very first thing our brains have to do is analyze 
What is it? What is that? Timbre. Uh, that's why we can call timbre the face of a record because it's the identity of who or what is making that sound. Is that drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, and this evolved to be, uh, that's why sound evolved to be the fastest of our, our sensory modalities. So when human beings are listening to a record, they decide really fast within a second whether or not they like it based on the timbre. This was shown in a, in a study that looked at tronic music, classical, and jazz. All three of those genres have different timbres, you know, the jazz and classical being acoustic, the electronic music not being acoustic. Anyway, people decide really fast. But after timbre processing, the signal splits off and it goes over here on the left-hand side where we process language for us to analyze, process, savor the words that we're hearing. It goes over here to the right side for melody and pitches and the intonation and the performance gestures and the emotion that those performers are expressing. And it goes up here to our rhythm processing areas. And we've got that internal clock that's uh, locking onto that beat and we're experiencing a tactus, we're experiencing rhythm. And then it goes a little further on and we process the aesthetic dimensions of things like, I don't know, is this cool? Is this my style of music? Is, it, is this the kind of sort of thing I like? Don't want to keep listening, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, to answer your question, when we're young, when we're teenagers especially, our little neurochemical factories are just in such flux. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. We're so self-conscious. We think when we're teenagers that everybody's talking about us and looking at us. No one is. We're the least interesting we're ever going to be. We're too old to be cute. We're too young to be interesting. So there we are as teenagers, and you're trying to figure out how to reconcile you and your consciousness with the external reality. How do you fit in? Do you fit in? Who are you? So you put on a record and you hear those words, if you want, over there on the left side. Or you feel those emotions over there on the right. Or you move like those players moved up here. And it can give you a sense of belonging. It can make you feel like that pattern of activity that left those musicians' brains is now a pattern of activity in your brain. And you're them. On some level, you are they and they are you. And it makes you feel connected and it, and it makes you belong. So when we're teenagers, those of us who love music, who experience that reaction and love it, we find our music really fast and we identify with our tribe, our people, our troop. This is the music of me. It's very, very powerful. And we say about, uh, about caregiving that uh, human beings bond, we imprint on those who take care of us for good reason. When people take care of you, you're, you're attached to them now. They took care of you when you were hurting. So if you're a teenager and you come home from a bad day at school, or you had a fight with your parents, or you broke up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and you put that record on, and that singer makes you feel better, you bond. You feel that you and that, that band, you're tight. They took care of you. Uh, that's very, very powerful. It tends to persist. Our musical tastes might change as we get older, that's fine. But we'll always have a soft spot in our heart for, for, for that pattern of neural activity that felt 
like us. We recognized it. And I heard it, it sounded, it's the music of me. And I am therefore somewhat like these people who made this music. They are, they are a part of me, I'm a part of them. And that makes you feel good. I remember uh, one of my most vivid musical memories. So I was about 14 and I got over to a friend's house and he was a BMXer, he raced bikes. And he would always meet other people because like I lived in a small town in Indiana. And so we were very isolated from sort of culture, I guess is how you put it. But uh, um, he had brought back this record and he put it on for me. So it's like, I don't know what to think of this. What do you think of it? And he put it on and it was a record by a group called Minor Threat. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they were just sort of like this DC hardcore punk sort of pioneers. And the first song, Filler, I can still, I, I remember getting goosebumps on my back just from the sound of like the first chord, the like coming in, like, and it was like nothing I'd ever heard. And it wasn't like they were technically highly proficient at their instruments and the sound is actually terrible, but it's kind of awesome at the same time. It changed everything for me, really. I mean, I would say the next moment after that was the first time I heard One Doves Cry by Prince. That was a very memorable moment where I got very much the same reaction but it wasn't like I felt like these are my people I just felt like I connected with the music because it's so weird the way it starts with that very like ornate guitar part and then goes into you know everything about it it's just it's so different but still still recognizable and comfortable. it's a pop it's it's a non-pop song in pop song form in many ways but anyway um kind of just threw a lot at you. But I think it fits into sort of that that fitting in and belonging feeling that you're talking about. Yeah, so I mentioned the music processing modules. Any one of them can give us a jolt of pleasure. So you described the timbre, the sound of those guitars. And as I, as I said, the timbre processing happens very rapidly. That released dopamine. Those sounds alone release dopamine and that feels good. So we, whenever we experience that, we, we, we seek to have that, have that experience again. For others, it might've been, well, the timbres are nice and everything, but then you hear the lyric, you hear a turn of a phrase and it's that lyric writing that poetry that makes you say, oh, that was good. And that can hit you with the dopamine, or it can be a chord change or a melody or a harmony that makes you go, oh, that's good. Or it can be that groove that just bends your back. It feels so good. Or it can even be just a, a cognitive appraisal of, damn, those guys are amazing. Uh, how is it possible for a human being to play that fast? You know, if you're if you're listening to some hardcore or something like that, Converge or Bad Brains, you're thinking, how is that possible? And that can give you the dopamine. So there, there are many, many paths in which music can cause us to feel joy and happiness, which is why they say music listening is a whole brain workout. I've heard you talk about how sort of the intention with Purple Rain was to sort of appeal more to sort of a less R&B and soul audience, more of a white crowd, um, a little bit more uh, rock influenced and so forth. 
I'm just wondering how much of that, because there is the famous incident where he was touring with the Rolling Stones and was booed in LA. I'm just wondering how much that impacted him, because it's really like a five-year period where Prince was really sort of focusing on bringing more of those sounds in, and then he later would kind of go back to sort of more his roots, so to speak. I'm just wondering if that was ever something that was discussed or came up or seemed to be a motivation in terms of on his part, what his reasoning for incorporating more of those sorts of um, sounds and elements into his music versus what he had been doing, which frankly was working great. Well, you know, all of us have inside us these, um, we have those traits that encompass who we are and we have those traits that encompass what we want. Who Prince was musically is a pop musician through and through. If you listen to his album, 1983, A Piano and a Microphone, it was released uh, a few years after his passing, but it's just Prince at the piano, singing and playing and just riffing, the kind of stuff he would do at home. Listen to the right hand on the piano. You hear him do jazz licks every now and then and then walk it back to pop. And you hear him do blues licks a little bit and then walk it back to pop. He was, through and through, a pop artist. That's who he was. What he wanted was what a lot of young people want. Great success. He wanted to be known. He wanted to matter. He didn't want to be pigeonholed. He wanted to to see how far he could get. So when he did his first two records, he did what most young people do. His first two records just followed in the style of the day, the R&B of the day. But his third record, Dirty Mind, was smart enough to figure out that there was an audience that he needed in order to be successful. And that audience was the critics and the scholars. So with Dirty Mind, I believe he made a conscious choice to make a pop punk record. And this record was punk. And it turned off the whole R&B audience that he had just cultivated, turned them off completely but Prince knew what he was doing. He picked up a new audience, which is the critics and the scholars. And then for his fourth album after that, Controversy, he picked up another audience, which is other musicians. Because on the Controversy record, it was less controversial, but he played and sang pretty much everything on it. And that was impressive to musicians, at least the ones I knew out in Los Angeles, the Crosby, Stills and Nash crowd, the whole West Coast LA scene around 1981. Then with the next record, 1999, he picked up the public, a pop audience, and he had his first crossover single with Little Red Corvette. So by the time he arrived at Purple Rain, he had attracted the interest and in many cases, the praise of these different audiences, the critics and scholars, the general public and other musicians. So with that Purple Rain album, he could do he could be who he naturally was, do what he wanted. And what he naturally was is a pop artist. Pop can be expressed as rock. It can be expressed as funk. It can be expressed as opera for all intents and purposes, because pop just means popular. So yeah, he had, he had the rock sensibility in him and he wasn't shy to express it. The Purple Rain album showed off who he was as a musician. And I don't think he um, ever felt like he was denying his true nature by being a rock or a pop artist. So I want to kind of move forward a few years. Um, 
I just have to say it, but uh, my actual favorite Prince album is Sign of the Times, which I know you you worked on. I, I don't, there's just something about that. I guess it's just sort of the visual component with the movie that, that I mean, I just think it's, it's one of the, it's certainly in the top three of greatest concert films ever, I think. Um, just as, and just Housequake alone, it's just sort of like, to me, it's like mind blowing. Like his dancing, the song itself, that was another moment I remember when I heard Housequake for the first time. That was just like, what the hell is this? This is awesome. This is like everything that I love in one song. <laughs> and it's fun. It's the silly, fun song, but it's amazing at the same time. Uh, but uh, so I've said that. Um, I want to get into sort of you leaving sort of the fold, the family. I mean, anybody who knows Prince is sort of the whole sort of the family tree, it seems like there is a lifespan people do eventually leave or are forced out or or what have you. Um, you know, I don't know if he was just sort of like cleaning house. I mean, what sort of inspired you to kind of go out on your own and start sort of being more of a producer as opposed to just an engineer? Yeah, being with him those years, it, it wasn't sustainable. It was thrilling, but uh, I had no life for myself and I had no I mean and, and what I mean is I had no no personal life no private life no family time no dating no celebrations or holidays because we worked every day if he was awake he wanted to have an instrument in his hands and if he had an instrument in his hands he wanted to be recording so it was <clears throat> a life where I'm on this train that's moving super fast metaphorically speaking and it's not stopping at any of the station you're not getting a break here. So you can only sustain that for so long. Uh, so it just kind of was time for us to part ways. Um, after Sign of the Times, well, at the beginning of Sign of the Times, he, his band broke up. Through mutual agreement, the revolution split off. <clears throat> Wendy and Lisa went off and did something else. The others went off. Uh, Prince found new musicians. And when you find new musicians, they're going to play differently. And if they're going to play differently behind you on stage, you're going to have to write and arrange and record a different kind of music to show off the talents of the people who are in your band. So without having Wendy and Lisa anymore, without having Bobby Z, uh, without having Mark Brown, Prince needed to write for others. So his musical style is changing. And at that time, um, it, it just seemed like the right time for me to, for he and I to go our separate ways and for me to um, have a life that included what I wanted. Cause I never thought about what I wanted for the whole time when I was with him. I was okay with that. That was our agreement, but you can only do that for so long. Yeah, things probably at this point professionally and uh, have gotten better in terms of a female presence in the recording industry, but still not like considerable. I mean, that's still got to be a little bit daunting. I mean, what's sort of driving you at this point other than just, I mean, was there anything, was it just like, I need to make money. So I'm going to pursue, this is what my skills are in. This is what I'm going to pursue. Or was it more than that? I was so scared when I left Prince. I really didn't know if anyone other than Prince would hire me. I really didn't know. I seriously wondered will I be any good to anybody other than him? Because he had this specific sound and the only sound I knew how to get was his sound. I joined him as a technician, not an engineer. So I could engineer Prince records, but no one else sounded like him. 
So it, it actually was a bit of a struggle the first few years. The first artist to hire me after Prince was the Jacksons, all the brothers except for, for Michael. And I, I did a record with them and their sound was close enough to Prince that I could maybe be of service, but it took me a little while, a few years, to find what we engineers call our sonic signature, meaning you're pushing sound around on the canvas of time to make it sound the way you want it to sound. So prior to that, I'd only made sound work the way Prince wanted it to sound. But I was learning and I was acquiring my sonic signature. I think by the year you know, 92, 93, when I met the band Gagita, Gagita is Greg Kirsten and Tommy Jordan. I met and worked with them. And in doing that, I developed my own sound. And once I developed my sound, I was off to the races. Then I felt like an artist, an engineer mixer artist, but an artist who whose sensibilities could combine with that of other artists and together we can, we can make art. I felt of use, not as a technician, as an artist. It took a little while to develop, but once it finally did develop, uh, my confidence increased. And it was from there that I started getting asked to, uh, to co-produce records and then eventually produce them. Okay, so just a brief list of some of the folks that Susan went on to work with over her 22-year career that happened after working with Prince. There's a guy named David Byrne, Rusted Root, Tricky, Michael Penn, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Tevin Campbell, Wendy Lisa, Bare Naked Ladies, T-Bone Burnett, Engineer for Violent Femmes, Quarter for Van Morrison. She even did vocals for uh, Murphy's Law on a song. Oh, Selena. Patti LaBelle was an engineer. Many others, including this next artist that she talked about quite a bit, Gigi Ta. I think there's a lot to be taken away from what she says about her time with them that can be applied to other areas of life. Basically, there's two ways to approach your life. You can be like Prince if you are fortunate enough and just be able to be a force of will and do exactly what you want when you want. Or you can be like a guitar and sort of explore and adapt and sort of find your way. There's a lot of people who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with Gagita in particular because they, while they had some commercial success, they weren't like major superstars. But um, I, I do know that both of those guys went on to do very remarkable things. Uh, I believe one of them has been uh, won a couple of Grammys as a, a record producer of the year sort of thing. Um, just wondering, as you are finding your sound, I'm just wondering if you feel like any of that had any influence on them and what they would go on to do, or is that just more like more of just a personal, just you? This is was a turning point for me in my own sort of understanding of sound and technology and all that. It's funny how they say that if you're an artist, everything influences you. Absolutely everything. So I'm sure, I'm sure I influenced Prince. I'm sure that I influenced Gagita. Um, the records that I made with Prince are different than the records that he made with other engineers. You know, everyone in the room is contributing to the ultimate outcome, more or less. 
So yeah, I, I'm sure I'm, I must have influenced them. They greatly influenced me. They, uh, Gagita, Greg Kirsten and Tommy Jordan were as opposite from Prince as you could be, yet they were his equivalent, Tommy certainly was, in terms of creativity. And Greg was his equivalent in terms of musical ability. But when I worked with them, Unlike Prince, who worked really fast, Prince's ideas came and we expressed those ideas and bam-o, it got onto tape. With Genki Ta, they were exploring the question of what music is, which meant that we questioned everything we did, every sound, every performance gesture, every part was examined to answer the question, what are we doing? What are we doing? And you would think that that would cause you to just stop on the tracks. But if you love record making that much, you can ask the question, what are we doing? Is this any good? Could it be something else? And you're not afraid to change it. You're not afraid to move to another position around this sculpture and move some clay around. They were constantly keeping the clay wet and pushing it into different shapes to see what it could be just to explore it, just to see what it could be. Prince was totally the opposite. Prince had a vision in his head of what he wanted and he took that clay and he sculpted it until it matched the vision in his head. Gegita took that wet clay and pushed it into an infinite variety of shapes. What that taught me is to have some deeper sense of what the hell it is I'm trying to say in record making. What are you trying to say? What will this record be to someone? Really think about the audience and their experience. And as I said, after, after meeting and working with those guys, I was off to the races. Because now I didn't have to worry about just having a print sound. Now I could work with any artist. And instead of thinking about, oh, this artist sounds, they should go like this, right? No, 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 no. Back up, back up. What's this artist trying to do? What are they trying to do? How can I help them do that? How can I help them do that? Let's get, rather than looking at them, let's get into them and let's help that music come out of them so that might increase the chances it goes into someone else. The whole transfer function shifted. It's, it's, I'm just thinking a lot about, and this probably does play into psychoacoustic somewhat. I'm not sure exactly how, but um, it seems like what you're saying is that there's essentially two different approaches to making music. Uh, I would imagine this is the same with how music is perceived is that there is this like Prince where there's a vision, it's expressed, it comes across, it hits you. Um, and his intent is, is so forceful in the way it's it's structured that you can't help but feel what he wants you to feel. And then there's this gig guitar approach where it's like, we're gonna switch this drum beat a little bit, maybe add a little bit more treble in this song, a little less in this other one. And it, changes the feel of it, what maximizes the sort of thing. And then there's the, the listener's experience, which is more open to interpretation, I guess. Okay, so for those of you kind of wishing we would nerd out on this topic a little bit, don't worry, we're about to do that. For those of you rather have us move on, sorry, it won't last too long. I always thought was interesting just looking at pictures of you in the studio with him and and other things and also just knowing things like for instance like uh, I think it was computer blue where um, 
like the drum beat is actually just a preset uh, drum beat on the Lin drum machine, which was new at the time, where not really changed much at all. Um, it's pretty much just straight where he's taking something that maybe is a little generic, but making it something way that isn't generic at all. You know, I mean, I guess this would maybe tie a little bit into some of your work with uh, uh, Tricky where he was very much the same, taking these weird sort of abstract loops and then turning them into music. It's something that doesn't seem like it could be something greater, but it is. Yeah, it's, um, if, if, if you will allow a brain scientist to answer, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about a couple of circuits involved. I found this fascinating, a couple of books that I've read on the neurobiology of creativity. So, okay, so you have to think of a creative idea and let's say you have to write a song for something, a theme song or whatever, or let's say maybe you got to design a poster or whatever. You have to think of something creative. And what we do is we open up a circuit in a nucleus called a precuneus over there on the right-hand side. And you open up that precuneus and you say, come on, original thought. Come on, and you kind of invite original thinking come through that gate and you're seeking, your brain is moving that spotlight of attention around and you're seeking something original that you think would be, okay, I think my creation could, could involve this. Once you have that original thought, you think, oh yeah, Okay, that could work. I think I'm gonna do it like this. You shut the one gate and you open up another gate. And that second gate is where you move from art to craft. And in that second gate, also over there in the temporal parietal junction, that gate is open to allow you to separate relevant from irrelevant information. All right, so this sound would work for this particular song I've just thought of. That sound would not work. It should be drum machine or it should be acoustic drums. It should be clean guitar. It should be distorted guitar. It should be flanged guitar or it should be the heavy metal pedal. You're comparing relevant ideas with that original spark of inspiration that you experienced to say, yeah, how do I make that thing I thought of? The uh, interesting thing in people who are hyper-creative, they've got a couple of broken gates. Meaning the little gate in the precuneus that allows original thoughts to come through on our command. It's kind of a leaky faucet in people who are hyper creative, meaning original thoughts are constantly coming, constantly coming, constantly coming. And the same thing with that other little gate. Uh, folks who are hyper creative have a broken gate. So they're more open to stuff that other people would disregard as being irrelevant. A person who's hyper-creative is going to keep an open mind, literally. So in the case of Prince, those song ideas were constantly coming, which is why we had to work for 24 hours, because he would not put a song to bed. He wouldn't abandon a song until it had been totally made mix ready. He wanted to take it from the original ideation to the final mix in one long session. So his ideas just kept coming and coming and coming, which meant his craft had to be super decisive in order to finish up this song and then get to the next one. <laughs> so he worked, I mean, we worked so hard in those years. Now, Tommy Jordan of Gagita is also, I believe, a hyper-creative. Tommy's ideas never stopped, but unlike Prince, Tommy wanted to try out every single one of them. Tommy was in no hurry. So when it came to separating relevant from irrelevant information, in Tommy's mind, it was all relevant. 
But that, that's the difference. The, 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 how, whether or not you're going to engage decisiveness in order to help you be productive, or you're just gonna be open to the muses and let yourself experiment constantly. You know, there's a whole other side of this that we haven't discussed yet. And that involves me bringing it back to cancer, because I always do. But even though it's, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of cancer, doesn't mean there's nothing you can take from it. So I hope you do that. And it's basically all about motivation. Hopefully listening to us talk about this can help you find some motivation for whatever it is that you're looking for out of your life. I guess just so you kind of know how I'm, my whole interest and in why I want to, why this is like, I do a lot of like cancer videos and podcasts and things like that. But like where I'm at is I feel like a lot of people that I encounter, they get stuck in their diagnosis and finding like reasons to not do things. And I think something that can be learned from your story, not just as something to, I think your story should be more widely known just because I think that you are a very interesting example of a very interesting life and how people I think should approach life to a certain extent. But I think that like, say for me, I've been told several times that I'm just dead already. That's truth, but I still continue to do these things. Like I emailed you, I'm working on a, a rock opera and things like that. And that's not something a cancer patient is supposed to be doing. I think it's it's not saying it's exactly the same thing as what you did, but the idea is like a woman shouldn't be going into uh, sound engineering, but there's something driving you to keep pursuing it despite all the naysayers. You are finding that sort of internal motivation to keep going. You're like, yeah, if I work hard enough and prove myself, they'll give me a shot at sort of the, the next step on the ladder and so forth. But there's also that sort of underlying factor, like this is something I have to do that's pushing you to come up with that sort of line of reasoning, like this is something I have to do. And same thing with me, I have to make these videos, I have to make these recordings, this music and stuff like that, um, whether it's something that makes sense to others or not. But I remember reading an interview with Bruce Springsteen in, in, a, in a music magazine a few years ago and why he had been so prolific like the last decade or so. And he's like, well, the light at the end of the train tunnel is a little bit brighter. So I'm a little bit more motivated to do stuff than I maybe was. I have this stuff inside of me I have to get out and I'm aware of time. I'm just trying to think of like how sort of this idea of exploring sort of your inner muse. For me, it's obviously a, a more musical perspective, but I think it could be applied to anything, whether it's writing or drawing or even gardening or whatever, like what is driving you and how should it be expressed? I'm just trying to think of what could be applied to that that might be helpful to people. Yeah, we all have so many sources of motivation inside us. I wish I knew more about this, but now that I'm entering my retirement, I'll have time to read Jack Panksepp's book on affective neuroscience. He looks at that. He looks at motives and drives. So we all have things we want. Most of us are um, only aware of some of them, but if you really want to know the full panoply of what you want, it's really helpful to daydream and fantasize. The daydreaming mind employs a network called the default network. That's our, that's the part of the 
well, a network in the brain that gets active when we're daydreaming and we're fantasizing. I love that network. It's also the network that is responsible for creativity. This next uh, talking segment might seem a little heady, but it actually has a meaning to me anyway. I mean, I, I personally believe that creativity, being creative, however that is, is a form of meditation. As you may have uh, noticed by now that I don't meditate correctly, I don't do much correctly. But um, when I also look at that and also the fact that somehow managing to stay alive, no science, the statistics say I should be dead by now. Um, I'm a very creative person. I, I very much believe that creativity and using your brain in that way has been a, a great boon to me. It certainly helped. Um, if people want to believe all the different things they believe may be quote-unquote curing them or saving them, then why not add creativity to that batch too? It's much more pleasant anyway than a coffee enema or drinking 12 gallons of celery juice or beet juice or what, what have you a day. So you're there and you're daydreaming and you're letting your mind off its leash and you're letting it go wherever it wants to go. And it's going to wander to those places that it finds rewarding. I think of it a little bit like a dog at a dog park. Some of them are very social. They socialize with other dogs. Some of them want to hang with people. Some are loners. They want to go off to the edges. Some just want to run away. your brain go where it wants to go and it's going to tell you what you want and by showing you what you want it's going to reveal who you are you are you are just relax just relax just relax let your mind wander there's no right or wrong way to do this just try just See how far you can go. If you do that well enough and often enough, you are likely to experience creativity. You can do it. You can I do believe it. in you. You can I do believe it. in you. You can I do believe it. in you. You can I believe it. in you. There is no failure. Since we're talking about cancer and survival, certainly there's a lot of fear and a lot of concern there that can cloud, cloud your thinking. And then it can be difficult to answer the question, I'm sure, what do I want when your life is perhaps in peril? Well, that's one thing I want. But if you have a minute, things calm down and you can daydream and fantasize about what you want it feels good and it's it's giving your brain permission to be itself to reveal itself to you to reveal yourself to you that default network is responsible for our sense of identity of who we are and if you want to be more than a diagnosis if you want to be more than a a spouse, or a parent, or a, whatever it is you do for a living. If you want to be more than that, do what you did when you were five years old. Daydream. 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 Let your brain have some fun. 
and, and, and it will fuel your creativity. And in addition to that, it will reveal that you're more than just this. You are, you are worlds inside you. Just try. Just try. See how far you can go. 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 Far I really like that. Uh, thank you very much for that. That's. Uh, I think that says it as about as well as I think it can be said. It's really how I feel. Two new agey psycho babble for you. No problem. I saw an interview where you're talking about how you learned different things like David Byrne, you learned about business, uh, Bare Naked Ladies was sort of being, I think, a band director. Uh, basically, I mean, and none of these artists are, I mean, I can't think of two more polar opposite artists than say Prince and Bare Naked Ladies. Both have merits, but are very different. That uh, Angels with Dirty Faces record by Tricky is like, it made me think differently about sound. So you could just talk a little bit about different things you've learned from different artists and sort of that idea of getting it done um, and that's powerful uh, um, or the spending time to really craft something. You learn the artist's value system and um, you kind of need to learn their value system because when you're making a record, it's just like manufacturing t-shirts or ice cream. You're having to balance the form versus the function. So the decisions you make about the form of, a, of an object depend on how you want it to function out there in the world. When you're making a Bare Naked Ladies record, it's pop. It's gonna function in the 90s for a pop audience, which means your sounds and your arrangements, your parts are gonna serve the function of the pop. A music needs to function for a pop music listener. But in the case of Tricky, the form can be different because its function is uh, for more of an art-loving music listener. But he's a little bit, uh, a little bit more uh, avant-garde than Bare Naked Ladies. So in that case, the sounds don't have to be perfect, uh, perfect in, in terms of the standard of what great audio engineering is. No, 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 don't worry about that. All it has to do is to function in such a way that people listening to it will say, that is cool, that is original, that's got a vibe, that's its function. There's a smaller audience for a tricky record and a guitar record than there is for Bare Naked Ladies or for Prince. So your, your engineering choices, your production choices are different. They're less constrained. And when they're less constrained, you can, uh, you can be more experimental. But yeah, you're constantly thinking, will this work? Well, it might work for Tricky. It wouldn't work for Bare Naked Ladies. It might work for Gagita. It wouldn't work for Prince. It's just, a, it's just your best guess. You never know. I guess, like I said earlier, it's like making T-shirts or making ice cream flavors. Will people want this flavor? The more unusual the form, the, the more limited its functionality. Cancer um, and people, like one of the things I, I think that is... For me, like there's a need to be stimulated creatively, um, not just to enjoy the music, to be put in a calm mood or a energetic mood because I'm feeling sort of fatigued that day. Um, I really need that sort of motivation. And so the stuff that I listen to that I like to listen to stuff that inspires me to think about creative things, but I think not everybody's me, obviously. So um, in terms of trying to determine what that flavor of ice cream is for say anybody, like, what is it um, in terms, and this is where neuroscience comes in, I'm sure, is that in terms of things to look for and how you can kind of gauge for yourself 
what is it going to be, what you're looking for in terms of, I mean, what are the factors do you think that people should be bringing? Is it more the lyrics? Is it the sound frequencies? Is it the style of music that reminds them of being a child? Is it, um, I mean, I could add a lot of different factors, but I think you get the idea of what I'm getting at. The first thing they need to do is let their brain make that decision for them. Let it, let it do the work. Let it do the work. And what you want to do is you play a variety of music for yourself and be open to receiving those treats. By treat, I mean that little hit of dopamine. Something just makes you feel good. Now, music listening, whether or not it makes you feel good, is in part contextual. You want a certain kind of music at one part of the day, another kind of music at another part of the day. That's okay. We all have different sweet spots on these seven dimensions of our listener profile. But to understand your listener profile, get rid of the distractions and the phones and the to-do list. And don't be looking at websites online. Just listen. And your brain is gonna bond to some records and not to others. When it bonds, ask yourself, what feels so good about is it the rhythm? Is it the sounds? Is it the idea of it? Meaning, is it uh, a realistic record and you enjoy picturing the musicians as they play? Or is it an abstract record and what feels so good about it? Is it just launched your mind into flights of fancy and it allowed you to think of creative thoughts or it allowed you to think of other worlds or see abstract shapes and colors? What did this record do for you that you wanted done? And you'll kind of set that aside. What's actually happening in the brain when you experience those dopamine hits, those treats, is the reward network of your brain is telling your auditory cortex right here above the ears, it's saying to it, remember that, remember that, this is us, this is the music of us, remember that. And it's shaping your auditory cortex to get better and faster at recognizing what you like. What you like can be based on associations. I like this record because it reminds me of when I was in high school. Or it can be based on what you perceive as an emotional truth. Or it can be based on, oh, that groove is just knocking you out. Or it could be based on the lyrics or any number of other things. Count, I think it's Count Basie. You said it. If it sounds good, it probably is. <laughs> Some of you don't really need to think about it or worry about what other people think. It's just if you like it, then it's good music. Yeah. I was going to say that I was thinking this morning of a record that I love as much as anything, and it's Howlin' Wolf's Smokestack Lightning. And All right, so I'm listening to Smokestack Lightning, and it makes me feel so good. Why? You know, the man was a, a, a Black southern Southerner born in uh, Mississippi in 1910, a World War II veteran. Why would a white woman from Southern California have any sense of recognition in listening to that. Yet, what was true emotionally for him when he was putting those sounds out there was 100% true for me emotionally when I'm receiving them. And that pattern of activity in my brain is the same, or a crude representation, that pattern of activity in his brain. And I'm similar to him now in, in this regard. I'm feeling the, the joy and the passion for listening to him. That's a, a bit of a mystery. But it's what I said earlier about inside of us, how we have many different personalities. We have many different strengths and weaknesses. We are worlds. We are many different people in our psyches. And listening to music is, 
it has been shown, the fastest and easiest way to connect with our own self-identity, build upon it if we need to. You were talking a little bit about sort of like sort of natural versus artificial. It almost doesn't even matter who the artist is that he's producing, but a producer, Steve Albini, you may be familiar with, he has a very specific sound. The thing I've always liked about the way he produces, he's not very, I wouldn't say he has a lot of variety in terms of how he produces records. They all have sort of his sound. But to me, it always reminds me, it always feels like I am literally uh, standing in the middle of a band rehearsal as they're working on the songs. Like I'm standing next to the drum set. Here's the guitar amp right over here. Here's the bass amp. The singer's standing right here. And I'm just in the middle. Um, it has that sort of feel to me. Uh, and some people can't stand it just because it feels sort of like not produced. It feels, it, it feels like the best possible, like, boombox recording of a rehearsal that you could possibly get to me. I know he puts a lot more thought into how he engineers stuff and things like that, but that's what appeals to me. It feels like I'm in the middle of the band when they're playing, where some people want to feel like they're at the stadium in like the 30th row watching their favorite band. Um, I guess I'm just, the question is just sort of how that all sort of ties into some of the things you were talking about. Yes, so you and I share uh, our sweet spots on the dimension of realism versus abstraction are in the same place. And they're in that same place, that place of preferring realism over abstraction because of what has rewarded us in the past. When I was a child, and it might've been the same for you. When I listened to records, my favorite fantasy where my brain wanted to go as soon as that record came on is to picture the musicians playing picturing the Rolling Stones, picturing the Who, and picturing Led Zeppelin when I was young, James Brown, Sly Stone, a little bit later, Al Green. Anytime that record came on, oh, if only I could be right there watching them play and perform. That was a reward. But uh, other folks I know, it's the exact opposite. Picturing the players was actually aversive. It was a barrier to enjoyment. A colleague at Berkeley named Dr. Erica Knowles, she's a PhD in music cognition. And uh, she's also a cellist. And I asked her, Erica, where does your mind go when you listen to records? And she said, abstract shapes, colors. And, 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 and we were talking and she's, yeah, if I can picture the musicians, it ruins it for me. I said, Erica, what about what happens when you go to concerts? She said, I don't go to concerts. I, I don't like concerts. I don't like seeing the musicians. So one man's ceiling is another man's floor. That forms in, in childhood. Why those sweet spots form in one place and not another place is probably due to chance and due to uh, whether or not you re were rewarded for listening to this kind of music and not that kind of music. Earlier I said that Sign of the Times was one of my top three favorite live albums, or I think it's one of the best top three. The other two would be Who's Live at Leeds, and the other one is Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads. Three very different musical groups, but for, for me, I, I just recognize their greatness. Like it transcends what the musical genre is. Like there's just something about it. And I, I think all of those sort of have a very sort of live, like you are just feet away from the artist. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you that the Sign of the Times concert film is incredible, incredible. Uh, it's, a, it's a valuable one for the youth of today. The youth of today are used to listening to records that where the performances have been pitch and time corrected. No, watch Prince in 1987 and recognize that's how well they played. Now, this is gonna sound like ridiculous, 
because it was so panned. But I actually loved The Song Remains the Same by Led Zeppelin. I was such a Led Zeppelin fan in the 1970s and that movie is terrible, but <laughs> it's the same satisfaction that a person might get from going to a live sporting event. Maybe you're watching a tennis match or you're watching basketball or something like that. And you're seeing human beings do things that most of us cannot do. Now, many people are just fine with watching sports on television, and I'm just fine with listening to records. I don't have to go to a lot of concerts. I enjoy them when I, when I go, but I prefer record listening because I like my own private Idaho there. Um, so you sort of get financial security from bare naked ladies. I mean, those records sold very, very well. So I imagine, you know, just way music production works with percentages and points and all that, that you did, you did well. So you're able to kind of refocus. You decide to explore science. Why? I got into the music business because my fantasies made it crystal clear that that's what I wanted. From daydreaming about people in the studio when I was young, fantasizing about what it would be like to be there making records. I went where my desires led me, but my desires were changing. Just curious about how things, how things work, how the natural world works. And those fantasies were getting stronger and louder and more comprehensive. They were taking over more of my thinking. And I thought, well, then I'm gonna have to do this, right? Because I think a good life is when your fantasizing brain and your physical body are in the same place, doing the same thing. So I knew that I, I'm gonna have to try and become a scientist because it's where my mind is going anyway. I want my body to be there too. Was your intention to teach or was that just sort of like what happened? No, my intention was not to teach, but I came to learn after going to college and getting a PhD that teaching is what, that's your day job. If you're a scientist, you, you're obligated to teach a class or two uh, in order to be able to, to have permission to have a lab and be able to do your research. Now for me, getting a PhD at age 52 meant that I'm not gonna do a postdoc at some research university. I'm just older than the average postdoc. So I got hired at Berkeley College of Music where I could teach record production and engineering and then also teach music cognition and psychoacoustics. But unfortunately, I mean, Berkeley's great and, I, and I've loved it all these years, but it's not a research institution. So I do some research, but it, it's really hard to, to have the time to do it, which is one of the reasons why I just recently retired so that I can spend more time um, doing research. You know, I know for me, a really weird moment was probably about 2005 when I was hanging out with a friend and they were talking about how his nephew had never seen a compact disc at all. And it's like, you'd only seen like MP3 files and WAV files and whatever. And um, I imagine that's even more so the case now where, um, I mean, I, I imagine that, I would think in a place like Berkeley, there's some familiarity with like vinyl and CDs and cassettes and things like that. But um, just because there are probably people who are inherently a little bit more interested in music than say the average student might be at any college. But uh, I'm just wondering, 
you know, even just the idea of mentioning Prince, like I'm, he's still very present in popular culture and all that, but he's slowly, it, like, he's like one of those guys you talk about, oh yeah, there was this guy, Prince, he was amazing. And, you know, mentioned the same breadth as like, say Stevie Wonder, who maybe is the only real sort of a corollary in terms of like a multi-instrumentalist, uh, brilliant composer with amazing financial commercial success and all that. Um, just wondering, I mean, how much of it is sort of like, oh, this this old timer with teaching us about producing and things just like aren't like that anymore. I'm just wondering if that was an issue. Oh, it's so funny. Um it's so funny to try and imagine what these lessons and these exemplars sound like to these to these young people. It, 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 it was a real concern and it was one of the reasons why I began thinking by the time I turned 65, which I did last year, I'm gonna have to phase out of this. Um, I was an effective teacher and my classes always filled up rapidly. So I knew all the kids wanted to hear what I had to say. Uh, I wasn't concerned about that. But when we talk about how music works, it's clear that the value system of my generation is different than the value system of theirs. For example, I was in class once a student is up there playing his work in progress and it was a, a rock track in the style of Green Day bass and drums and guitar, that's as far as he'd gotten. And it was on Pro Tools, the digital audio workstation. So he played it and uh, it sounded good. And I said, yeah, you know, put the vocals on, you'll be good. And then there's a kid in the back of the room named Jared. And Jared says, but dude, you're going to fix those out of time snare heads, right? <clears throat> Joe, it was his name, says, well, what out of time snare heads? And he said, go back, go back, go back, play the end of the bridge going into the chorus. So at the end of the bridge, the drummer did a blast beat on his snare, he went and then came in for the outro chorus and his arm must have been tired as it would be if you'd given your all. And the snare hit came in just a wee, wee, wee bit, milliseconds late, a little bit softer than the other hits. Now I listened to that and I heard nothing wrong with it. I explained to the class, he damn well better have those snare hits be late because I want to hear that his arm gave me everything on that blast beat. Son, if you <laughs> play your hardest on that blast beat, you're not doing it right. These little errors in performance, these variations in timing and, and amplitude are telling us what the performer intended and how hard they worked for us. We pick up on those subtle cues, we, we read that, and it allows us to picture those players in this particular recording, because that's what happened in the studio. Uh, I explained to the students that in my day with analog, you couldn't correct any of that stuff. So what you heard on record was what people did. Uh, I said, these days, you know, if you correct those, it's gonna be artificial. It's not gonna be a real performance of what actually happened. You're gonna remove those cues from the listeners. You're gonna sterilize it, sanitize it, make it perfect and clean. So do you guys still think that Joe needs to fix those snare hits? And they were, they kind of looked around at each other and they went, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which was really, really funny. And, and what they were saying is, teacher, we don't care about realism in our musical art. Teacher, we want musical ideas, and those ideas need to be executed perfectly because you can. 
And it's just like the kids who are watching television. We don't need to see documentaries necessarily. We're interested in fantasy. We, we want to see zombies and dragons and the, the, the worlds that don't exist. We want to see fantasy worlds integrated with real human beings because we can do that. And that's exciting and that's new. And that's what's happening with music right now. Their generation wants a technical perfection so that they can spend more time focusing on the vision. In our generation, we focus more on the performances and, and, and the abilities, but they don't care about that. Okay, for, for those of you who thought that um, we're starting to wind things down, we are, but we're kind of not because I am feeling a little hot. I know this is not really totally in line with everything. I, I think probably what I wanted to get into, which is all the psychoacoustic stuff and just uh, Susan Rogers' story, but this whole idea of quantizing and having things perfect and all that. and I know people are going to disagree with me, but if they disagree with me, they can start their own podcast. Trust me, it's not that hard. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> um, anyway, as you can tell, just from the few episodes I've done so far, I don't like to do things straightforward. I kind of feel the same way with quantization and DAWs, as they call them, digital audio workstations or whatever, you know, where you're recording and you can perfect everything and get it all like perfectly timed out and things sounding perfect. But I don't like that. I've never liked that. I don't think that's creativity. I don't think um, that suits any purpose. I actually use quantization and other fancy things sometimes when I'm doing music or I'm editing these podcasts. But I also always make a point to kind of, excuse my language, but fuck shit up. There's a song by the John Spencer Blues Explosion called Make It Fucked Up. As I always think of that song whenever I am writing a song or whatever, it's like, what can you do to make this really unique and different? To me, that is beauty. Uh, maybe it's a grotesque form of beauty where it's uh, part um, it's part just absolutely nauseating and other part is just breathtaking. To me, that's real. That's a reflection of real life, of beauty, of pain, of destruction, of love. If you're not trying, then what the hell are you doing? I don't know, it's just my view, and like I said, if you don't like it, start your own podcast. I dare you. I dare you, I dare you. I think there's something really, one of the things I think it's very uh, valuable to learn sort of from your story and your insight is sort of this sort of uh it's almost like you have this mantra of like i want to do this so i'm going to do it you know i think that there's something to be i mean am i accurate in that assessment or is that sort of like just me placing something upon you yeah i'd rephrase it to say i want to do this so i'm going to try to do it i don't have any strong sense of whether or not it will be successful of whether or not it will work. I, I, I don't say I'm gonna do it and I wanna do this and damn it, I'm going to by hook or by crook. I don't know if I give myself that much that much control. At least the yeoman's effort sort of thing. 
Yeah, I do. I do know this much that if I want it badly enough, I'll at least try. And as I said earlier, just see how far I can get. And it turns out that I've gotten further than um, what I thought. Would like to talk a little bit about the book. Yeah, the book is called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And it'll be out September 20th. The book is describing the listener profile along seven dimensions of music and art, any one of which can give us a jolt of dopamine. So the seven dimensions of music listening involve the four musical dimensions, lyrics, melody, rhythm, and timbre. And then there are three aesthetic dimensions that apply to all art, like movies, books, and television, and music as well, which is authenticity. Authenticity is the sense of where you like your performance gestures to come from, above the neck or below the neck. When I listen to music, I like that gut bucket blues. I know, Rudy, you like that punk. You want that raw expressivity. Many of us like that sort of thing, but there are others who get their reward, not from raw gut bucket expressivity, but from a more cerebral, clever as hell place. Another dimension is realism versus abstraction. Do you like your records to reflect real human beings who were in the studio making music with real instruments? I do. Others like a more electronic sound or more abstract sound, a more computer generated sound because it allows them to have a different kind of mental fantasy when they listen. So realism versus abstraction. Another dimension, the third aesthetic dimension is novelty versus familiarity. Do you like your playlist? to be those classic forms of music, the forms you know really well. And when you buy a new record or bond to a new artist, is it gonna be in a, a classic style, classic rock, folk, bluegrass, something like that, bebop, jazz? Or do you prefer the more novel musical forms where people are pushing the boundaries of what music is? So there are these seven dimensions your sweet spots are unique to you on all seven of these dimensions. And together, that constellation is your listener profile. In the book, I'm talking about how it forms and what they are, describing those profiles, how they got to be that way. And then uh, there's a chapter on what music sounds like to a record producer. And the final chapter is on love at first listen. Just like love at first sight, falling in love with a record is like falling in love with your romantic partner. They're not perfect, neither are you, but you're perfect for each other. And that happens with music. Helen Wolf music's not perfect, but it's perfect for me. And if all that sounded pretty dry and clinical, don't worry, as I mentioned at the start of the, the, the podcast, she uses a lot of songs, like a bazillion of them. That might be a slight exaggeration, but there's a lot. And they're all songs that you're very familiar with um, to illustrate the points. Um, so I think it's kind of just looking through the the uh, what I saw of what I've seen of the book so far. I mean, it seems like it would just be fun to look for your sort of songs you like and then to read about them from this particular perspective. So I think I'll teach you a lot about yourself, help you understand music, help you understand why you like the music you like, and just maybe find a little bit more joy and satisfaction from life. That can't hurt, can it? And if you'd like a little sneak preview 
Uh, next episode of the podcast, I'll actually be uh, discussing some specific songs from the book that I picked to kind of discuss and give my thoughts. And I'm pretty sure you'll hear me cry again. You'll hear me laugh, tell some stupid stories. And uh, Susan Rogers will say something really, really smart because she's really, really smart. And I'm just kind of there. So, okay. Uh, going to finish up the podcast now with one last little tidbit. Oh, I can hardly wait. So uh, I'm selling my place here in Boston, getting a new place out in the country. And the things I'm going to do now involve a deeper immersion into science, science reading and writing and studying. Um, I'd like to make a contribution to the scientific community the same way I made a contribution to the music community. I don't know if I'll be successful because now I'm much older, but I'm going to try. And I'm, I'm gonna try to partner up with colleagues at research institutions and make a contribution to the world of science. They say about the sciences that when you get a PhD, it's like taking your brick just your one little brick and adding it to the wall of human knowledge. Okay, I got a PhD, I wanna do that, but, but uh, get, they get my brick, but the, the scientists, they get more than one brick and, and I'd like to be putting some bricks into that wall. I have no doubts that whatever you're gonna do is gonna be fascinating and highly compelling and certainly make some sort of positive contribution in some, some, some way. Um, you know, I think just like living life, just sort of always sort of, looking to improve things even if it's just like half a percent i mean that's a worthwhile effort and usually you're at least a little successful so it could just be cr crazy talk crazy uh, new age spiritualism or whatever but i do believe that music at least for me has been uh been a key just because it's triggered certain things in me did that have kept me going beyond what's the expectations? But I wanted to thank you for your time. I don't know if there's anything else you want to hit before we finish up, or if, and I certainly could ask you questions for hours and hours, but I don't want to. I don't want to abuse this privilege you've given me. So. Well, thank you. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is that we're working on the website for the book and the website's going to have or it does have a record poll. And the record poll means share a record that you love. Tell us why you love it and why what it sounds like to you. I'm endlessly fascinated by that. Just one? You can, you can go on that record pool as often as you want. Uh, it's this is what it sounds like, all one word. This is what it sounds like.com. Yeah, throughout the book, I'm, uh, I'm using records to illustrate a point. And they're not necessarily my favorite records. They're, they're records that, that make the point. The book isn't about my taste in music. That's the last thing we were trying to do. The book is about the listener, your taste in music. So I deliberately tried to make it style agnostic. There's over 120 some odd records that are cited in this book from all these various genres, because the point is not, here's what it sounds like to me. The point of the book is learning what it sounds like to you. Thanks for listening. New episodes of the R3 podcast most Sundays. See the episode description for notes and where to find more online.